Welcome to Amplified. We're the show that will help you take your message, whatever it may be, and get it out through social media, networking, and other marketing channels. Maybe even some that you've never thought of. Whether you're an organization, small or large business, or you just have the next positive message that's sure to go viral, you'll want to stay tuned this hour. Now, here's your host, Ken Rashawn. Well, golly gee, we have been on the road and finally back in D.C. I went to the Women's Economic Forum, which is where we met our first cameo guest, Mayor Cassie Franklin, and really excited that uh, she won an award. Andrea, how has your week been? I think you've been away from your family for like almost two years now. It's starting to feel like that. Uh, yeah, I've been in um, L.A. and then San Francisco and then in Houston. So uh, lots of really great events and great people. So thank you so much for asking. Why don't you uh, give a shout out to those events since you have been touring the country well, and the ones you. you're doing this week? <laughs> I forget. Oh, yeah, I forgot where I was going. Uh, so Women's Economic Forum, oh, that was fabulous, hosted by Didi Wong and Dr. Harbin Aurora uh, from uh, Didi's from L.A., uh, Social Spotlight Events, and Dr. Harbin is from New Delhi, India, where the organization is actually hosted, the mother company or the mother organization. And I won an award, so um, um, I guess I get to toot my own horn for that. I got a Woman of Excellence Award, and it was amazing. They had um, several hundred women and men supporting women in economic growth. And then we, uh, Ken and I, both flew to San Francisco for a Carla Secura uh, and covered and talked about uh, with him and Glenn Dietzel about masterminding at a higher level and really connecting people with this awesome ability to um, make the world a different place. And then on to Houston for Speak in America with Ernesto Verdugo and several people from all over the world, Dubai, Mexico, Brazil, and so forth, uh, speaking and honing their skills on speaking in the United States. So it's been a great event. And then I'll be heading to Manny um, Manny's event for some reason. I can't remember Manny's Lopez. last name. Lopez. Lopez. Thank you, Manny Lopez. And it's for the Cervex uh, event, and that Cervex with an S, S-E-R-V-I-X. And uh, we'll be talking there as well and um, showcasing uh, Albert Corey's new book um, that I co-wrote with him, Perception, How to 10X Your Business and Look Like a Fortune 1000. So lots of fun things. We'll be doing some Keep Smiling projects while we're there as well. Well, and Manny's uh, Keep Smiling prototype is going to be uh, shown off at that event. He has really an interesting event. He's honoring people that are about service and creating impact in the community and on our planet for a vision. For instance, someone like Frank Shankowitz, who just out of an idea of let's make a wish for people that are children that don't have hope or need hope. And it's thousands and thousands of wishes that have been created for Frank and, of course, with his new movie, uh, Wish Man. There's all those kind of people that are going to be there, very like-hearted, like-minded people, the type of people that will give you goosebumps and keep you in, I guess, check for how big you can play as a human and also really uh, focus on a better 2019. I wanted to also uh, say something funny. That Carlos, when he <laughs> announced your uh, your PR status, he says, and she won – an award for being an excellent woman. I was like, okay, well, it's probably a little more than that, but <laughs> Carlos, 
didn't realize that. Yeah, Carlos Carlos always has an interesting and funny way of expressing. But he is he's really doing some big things and we're excited that he's doing his Keep Smiling book and he may be the first uh, complete bilingual uh, Keep Smiling book, of course, Espanol being the first or second language that we're going to honor, which is don't kill me, but I think it's Siga Sonriendo, and so that is Keep Smiling in Spanish. We have 24 languages, so we're looking for other partners that would like to share the Keep Smiling in their language, their native tongue, and then we teach them the culture and the language of how to actually learn how to speak in another language and have fun with it. So I wanted to get to our first guest, and we met her briefly, and she was honored at the Women Economic Forum. So why don't you give an introduction for Mayor Cassie Franklin? Um, well, yes, uh, she is the first female mayor to be elected of the city of Everett, and she really focuses on economic development, public safety, and civic engagement, and she's used her really extensive leadership experience to ensure her city has ongoing financial well-being and the success of Everett's businesses, so super excited to have her here on the program. Welcome to the show, Cassie. Thank you very much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, and we got you in the Key Smiling uh, movement too. You're going to be in the uh, Women Empowerment Edition, so that's pretty exciting. Outstanding, outstanding. Well, I, I was super honored to be at the Women Economic Forum and to receive a Woman of the Decade Award. I was honestly very humbled and shocked that I was going to be recognized, and it was just empowering and fantastic to be around so many women supporting women, celebrating each other's successes, and trying to inspire other women to step into leadership. Well, we're going to share this program, obviously, with Dee, and she was on our show just prior to going to that event. I go to hundreds of events a year, and I have to say that event stood out as one of those events that was life-changing. You couldn't bump in as someone that you wouldn't want to do business with, wouldn't want to have lunch or dinner with to learn more about them and to grow with them. So wh- That's right. what, was, what was different about that event to you? You know, I, I looked around. It was actually at the at the award ceremony. There was one man sitting at our table, and it was a table of women. And he mentioned, wow, I'm, I'm the only man here at the table. And I realized that in the world that I work in, in politics here in, in Everett, I am often the only woman at a table of men. And so it was just inspiring to be around so many powerful women leaders, just brilliant folks that are leading in their area of expertise and um, and a lot of diversity in the room of, of, of expertise. And so that really stood out to me as something that was unique about this event. Amit, I, I agree with you. And Didi um, may not ever appreciate what a ripple effect this event's going to have, but I looked around that room and she was very inclusive of men that support women empowerment. Yes, and yes. That, that, that was a very beautiful part. I, I go to a lot of women empowerment events, and they are uh, they are almost exclusively women. And I I'm like, wow, you know, I was filtered in as someone that's trusted and someone that really cares about amplifying. And and from a tribute to my mom who died of Alzheimer's, that is really my calling. So I was really, really pleasantly surprised that there were so many men honored there for being the cheerleaders and obviously the uh, the strategic partners for the women. Crusade and leadership, and also mostly about inspiring them to continue. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's a, it was an honor to be there. I think I was one of the only elected officials, so i got to brag about my beautiful city of Everett, Washington here. <laughs> we're just north of Seattle, and we're the largest city in our county, I think the largest city north of Seattle, and it's just a beautiful place to, to be, and 
I feel very humbled and fortunate to be leading in one of these one of the most amazing cities in the world and I encourage anyone to come visit us because it is just an incredible place with a beautiful town town uh, world class education systems and uh, great partners big big businesses like Boeing and then really exciting uh, businesses like Funko in our downtown core that really make Everett a pretty special place that's pretty cool so uh, Boeing is headquartered there or what, what is you their know, title? Boeing headquarters is in Chicago but we have the the largest uh, number of Boeing employees of any of the Boeing sites we have the largest building in the world by volume where we uh, build airplanes here and um, most people don't know that Boeing is right here in Everett and it's a, obviously a very important partner for our city and region, uh, all the aerospace um, supply chain businesses that are part of that system here in, in Everett and in Washington and then we have world-class healthcare partners as well, Providence Hospital, Everett Clinic, Seattle Children's, all right here in Everett and a Navy base um, and beautiful uh, Payne Field, uh, we will have uh, commercial air here starting in February, a, a gorgeous boutique airport. So people will be able to fly in to visit us right into uh, Payne Field. Wow, that's almost an invitation for the next Women Economic Forum. That's right, that's right. <laughs> you know, I was, actually, I was actually uh, at Tabrizi's this uh, last Saturday in Baltimore, Maryland, in her harbor, and Boeing was having their very big holiday party gala. And, man, they, they spared no expense to... <laughs> to honor all the awardees that actually make Boeing great. So that's that was kind of interesting that you, you mentioned Boeing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're glad to have them here in Everett. So what's next for you in 2019? What's your big plan? You know, we are going to continue our focus on public safety, economic development, and community engagement in the public safety arena. We've been focused a, a lot on um, reducing youth gang and gun violence, and we've um, made some major progress this past year, and so we're going to continue our efforts there to ensure that youth in this community are, are safe. Um, that's an uh, area that is very important to me. I, my, I spent my career in the nonprofits helping homeless and at-risk youth, and so I have a real passion for youth, and I'm glad to keep that priority here in our city government. And then Obviously, supporting our businesses, helping them grow and thrive. We've got some good strategic plans in in the works for business development. And then lastly, community engagement. I I found that not everyone tends to have a voice uh, in local government, and we are reaching out to ensure that every resident and visitor in our city has a voice in their local government, that we are engaging them and, and making sure that we're meeting their needs and that they can contribute to our city's success. Well, that's awesome. You know, I, when you said about public safety, I, I just couldn't help but think about one of my favorite quotes by Mary, uh, Mayor Marion Barry of Washington, D.C., which I live near. And he said, outside the killings, D.C. is one of the safest cities in the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> And we just don't want to, you know, we, we have to do something to, to make a, our, our city safer. And I feel like we're really on the right path there. We've got a fantastic police chief who's been working in partnership with community leaders and um, youth group leaders that are um, really uh, ensuring uh, positive preventative work to keep kids safe. How big is Everett? 111,000 people. That's, and as I said, we're amazing. the county seat of our local local government, so urban center of Snohomish County. Just think when uh, in 2019, somewhere around February 16th, um, it's going to be 111,111, so you'll be straight ones right across. That's, that's cool. right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on being part of the Keith Smiley Movement, your award that you received and well-deserved at the Women Economic Forum. And we will have you back, of course, to hear the status of how you're doing next year. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. All right. Andrea, if you'd please introduce our lovely next guest. Yes, our next guest is Dr. C. Lou Carferno. Uh, Lou is... (laughs) I had the pleasure of meeting him just a couple of days ago. He is so talented and so funny and so interesting. This man not only helped design the NASA spacesuits, but he has done such remarkable work in the world to work with the United Space Alliance, um, not only as a spacesuit engineer, but to do other things that he has done with them to create um, an atmosphere and a, a, a work environment so that our astronauts are safe when they're in space and he has been able to take that knowledge and work in multiple different areas he's also a teacher and and education and he has been doing such amazing things Uh, so one of the things that he's done in particular is that he has Oh, what's the word? Um, consulted on different movies like Armageddon and uh, Space Cowboys with Clint Eastwood, and amongst so other things. He has so many accolades. I'd rather just bring him on and talk about him with him because he's that amazing, just super talented. Uh, Doctor C, can you join us now? I give you a huge standing ovation. Here. How are you, Lou? Hello. Good. Fantastic. Thanks for asking. Well- it was a pleasure talking with you yesterday. I remember calling and saying, Lou, this is Ken Rashan. You said, only call me Crazy Lou. And I was like, even during the show? And you were like, maybe. So uh, thank you for being on the show today. And, and thank you for sharing, uh, I guess, in confidence. And I'm letting it out on the air right now that you love peaches. So uh, congratulations <laughs> on that big share. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Well, I was uh, particularly interested in the fact that you didn't know you were as smart as you were when you were a, a kid, and I'd like to start off there. Like, how does uh, uh, how does a parent know that their child is a, a future inventor and uh, innovator? And then, secondly, when did you realize it? So I feel as though a parent would understand when a child is different or an innovator is when they don't fit in to the norms of society growing up, and so. As as the story goes, um, you you let a child be a child and discover what they like in life and what they get out of it based on what their passion is. That makes sense. Certainly. And what was your passion? My passion was always being happy and helping other people and service service above myself because I like seeing smiles on people's faces. And I like seeing them achieve the very best they can do in life because everybody has what's called potential energy. And it's tapping into that potential energy that makes all the difference. Well, that's amazing that that was actually what triggered your first, I guess, uh, initiative for continuing to have greatness in the world. So what was it that made science and math so much of an attraction? because it was really hard to do and so I loved the challenge of it and I love learning and I never stop learning and then I love explaining it to people how it works because a lot of people who don't like math they simply don't understand math well for the purpose of our audience kind of I guess listening to what you had to over, uh, overcome and also learn about what was it like when you were a kid 
that you were misunderstood and uh, talk about the story of how it actually lit the light bulb that you wanted to do bigger and better things. I'm a, I am a product of the Catholic school system where it was all about conforming and being in uniform and being like everyone else. And to me, it was very boring because I wanted to be different. I wanted to stand out. And so it's a really funny story in the fourth grade class when we had art, I was drawing a picture as instructed of a face. And when I drew the face, um, I decided to cut my own hair off and make a mustache. Well, lo and behold, I get in trouble and they call my father and my father had to come out and talk to the principal of why I was different. I mean, my father being a, an Italian man, no sense of humor, didn't understand it. And of course I got in trouble for that. And so I couldn't draw mustaches on dating after that for a while. <laughs> so, uh, so you kind of gave a little idea of what your dad was like. So what were your parents like that, um, again, helped you be who you are? So it's really interesting. My father worked three jobs. He never graduated at grade school. He went right to work trying to support his family, which I didn't understand it then, but why he would not have a sense of humor, I understand it now, because he's always working. And there was <laughs> three other siblings with myself, and my mother was great, and we got in trouble, and he came home and said, point out which one you want me to hit, and then he would go down a line. Whoever, and, and like kids, everybody gets out of line. And, and so <laughs> he was always, he always had this negative attitude to things, and he said, you can't amount to anything. And I remember flying on a corporate jet one time, and he said to me, why would they put you on a corporate jet? And, mm. and so I didn't want to explain it to him because he didn't understand it. But I had an uncle who was a um, professional barber who would always tell me when he would cut my hair, you could do whatever you want in life. It's totally up to you. So I had these two opposing forces trying to drive me. And I learned the value of work and the ethics of work is when I worked for my uncle and I would go into his barbershop and I would mop the floors, I would clean up, and then sometimes I wouldn't. I would just hang out, kind of watch TV, and he would send me home instead of with $20, it was with $5. And so I started understanding the value of money at that point. That's very cool. So your, your dad would, uh, figure, uh, would ask your mom who was the one who was going to receive the, uh, the discipline that night? Well, you know, at the end, I'm sure people go through this all the time. When your mother is tired of what you're doing and she says, I'm just going to wait till your father comes home. <laughs> and like a, like a Doberman, my ears stood up and I'm like, uh Oh, that means we're in trouble and you, and you can't get out of it. So now the, the process is already taking place. So you just have to wait. Well, my dad, uh, my dad did the same thing with my mom, except that I only had one brother, and my brother was always exempt from this rule. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Well, yeah, it, my, in my house, my sister was never exempt from the rule. We, he was an equal opportunity offender. He went right down the line. <laughs> that's cool. Well, since Andrea got an inch, uh, more of a chance to meet you, and she certainly has uh, spent a lot of time sharing how amazing you are, and I'm, I'm excited to know you better, and, and thank you for being on the show. So, Andrea, you had a question? 
Uh, yeah. So I had the pleasure of being uh, hearing you speak when we were at the NASA Museum, and you were sharing about how you worked on 11 different missions and how you trained two of the space shuttle crew from Columbia. And I wondered if you talk about that experience and, and then the re- tragedy that occurred. Well, so, and thank you for asking, because the, the astronauts, we would always say we have friends in high places. And, and it was a very fun experience, but you knew at any moment you could be called to task to do something that's completely above your pay grade to make it happen. And, and so I was training several crews at the same time, which the cycle goes, they trained for two years to do a spacewalk or one mission. And so when I was assigned to STS-107 with Columbia, I worked with um, Dave Brown, is one of the EVA crew members, which is, stands for Extra Vehicle um, Mobility Unit. So they would do their spacewalk. And then Laurel Clark. And I remember putting their seats together, getting the correct sizes, and they would train in the pool just like any other kind. And what we thought was really cool was they would come to us with their pictures and they would sign off. They would ask, what would you like to see in my picture? And I just said, whatever you feel as though I did to help you through your mission because I did not want any preferential treatment. I wanted her to be honest with me. And so she wrote on the picture, Lou, thank you for the great glove fit. And that, to me, meant a lot because when you're doing a spacewalk, the most important thing other than surviving is ensuring that the gloves fit correctly. Because if the gloves do not fit correctly, they cannot really complete a mission. Then you have what's called a mission failure. Hmm. Andre, do you have another question? Well, just that, um, you know, what you had shared with us about when Columbia went down then, um, you know, your reaction to that, if you'd share that with our audience. Absolutely. And so it was like a typical every other day. You're assigned to the mission. It flies. You're like, I I like to say, the shell answer man. Remember the old shell guy had all the answers to everything? And you would carry the books with you and all the suit sizing. So if something goes wrong, NASA would call you and say, we have a problem on orbit. Let's see what we need to do to fix this. Here's a problem with the suit and so forth. And so it was... Saturday morning about 9 o'clock, I was sitting in the office gathering all the data and the paperwork for the next flight when suddenly, as Columbia's coming back through the atmosphere, conversations are normal, then all of a sudden they went dead. And and then they keep trying to pot up and call Columbia. Well, most people wouldn't understand that when it goes dead like that, it's not an, an anomaly it's a serious situation that after it comes through the atmosphere, there's only one place it's going is to, to KSC and to fly from Texas over to Florida. It takes less than 10 minutes. While it's been 15 to 16 minutes, I knew something was wrong. And so at that point, I, I, I got really saddened and I hoped for the best because they did have an escape uh, procedure to get out of a shuttle if something went wrong. But of course, as we know, as the story went on, um, none of that actually happened. And then when we figured out the, the reality and the gravity of the situation, 
um, we started getting phone calls from the inspector general of NASA and other authorities like the FBI, and they were telling us to take all the records and secure the records for Columbia immediately. And then we had to, uh, thus the story begins of doing the accident investigation. And at that point, the only thing you can hope for is that you did the best you could have done with the training with the crew. So there is not enough time to ask you all the stories that you obviously have experienced, but I do want to ask the story that has to do with, I guess, the biggest challenge. So think of a time that you actually had to really solve something big or it was going to affect people's lives. Well, it, it, I will date back because with the Columbia incident, um, I've seen this story before. And let me back up. When I served in the United States Air Force, I would do spy missions all over the world with the SR-71 and the U-2 spy plane. And the routine I had to complete was shooting up the crew, buckling them into the aircraft, and then launching them for 14 hours from different places around the world. On a particular mission in around 1988, the crew out of Kadena Air Force Base was launched to go towards Vietnam to take pictures at 80,000 feet because the aircraft flew three times the speed of sound. Well, the aircraft, that aircraft was lost because they have what's called a, an engine unstart. And when they have an unstart, without getting too technical, the aircraft started coming apart. Well, the crew got out of the aircraft, and actually Filipino fishermen fished them out of the sea and brought them back. And then we got to speak to them when they, when they came back, and they told us all the equipment worked as advertised, and we felt really good about ourselves because you get, you get used to tasks that seem um, just common until one day everything has to work. And I live my life in that respect where at any time you never know what's going to happen, whether you're driving to school you're working at a normal job, even sitting in an office, that you suddenly have to get up and do something about it. Awesome. So I, I want to uh, talk about something that I was very interested in yesterday that has not actually been addressed today, and that was your education. So at what point did you decide that you were going to go to college and pursue a master's and go beyond that? Well, I decided... It wasn't an easy path, so it was the path of, I hate school, I don't want to be in school, I'm being told what to do, again. And so, in the 12th grade, I remember a guy named Kevin in the schoolyard of the public school system, because I got kicked out of Catholic school, that I had a fight in the schoolyard. Over, who knows, probably a girl or whatever. But when I went in, and the principal said, because you fought in the schoolyard, we're going to... Um, not allow you to go to your prom. And that was very, every, all my other friends were going and I wanted to go. And so I said, if I can't go to my prom, I'm going to quit school. And so I left school. I dropped out in the 12th grade for about three years. And then I pursued my other passion actually as a blue collar worker, working on cars and doing body work. But when I went through a program at a school called Penco Tech in New Jersey, they said, you can't graduate without your high school diploma. So Luckily, I had a, a really cool girlfriend at the time, 
to actually put my um, track together what I needed to finish the high school diploma. I think it was like a history class. Completed the class, got the high school diploma, got out, and then I went home and she started talking to me about going to college. And I'm, I was like, I'm not that smart to go to college. I, I can't concentrate. I think I got attention deficit disorder. They didn't name it that back then, but I had a hard time paying attention to anything. I couldn't focus. And so I had to concentrate on it. And, and mm-hmm. so she convinced me to go to college one semester. I went for law enforcement. And then I made the dean's list, and I told my father, I said, there's something wrong. They got the wrong guy. I, I'm not that smart to make any list. I'm lucky to be here. And, and, and so after that, I... I I said to my father, I, I think I want to go do this college stuff. It seems like a lot of fun because it's something that I like. And I said, can you pay? And like the typical Italian, he said, no, you know what? You're the oldest. You're a man. You figure it out. I'm not going to do it. And I said, but dad, you pay for my sister. And he said, you're a man. You figure it out. That's my daughter. I take care of her. He said, go join the military. Like it's a joke. And so I started thinking about it. I said, Okay, let me go look. And the military, most people going at 19 enlisted. I was going in at 26, and my friends are like, are you crazy? I'm like, what else is new? Here we go with Crazy Lou again, right? <laughs> and so I said, sure, I'm going to join. And so I went down, I talked to the recruiter, and they feed you pizza. I remember every time you go and they feed you pizza, and I said, you know what, guys? Keep your pizza. I'm, I'm going to go do this. I want to see what it's like. So I had another harebrained idea. I was on a six-month deferment. I said, you know what? I might as well get a pilot's license while I wait. This way I could get in and maybe fly airplanes. So I got my aircraft private pilot's license. I went in, and then I realized my vision was in 2020. And back then, they weren't doing anything other than natural vision. And so I had to be relegated to working with the aircraft as support personnel. And that's where I wound up on BL Air Force Base with the SR-71 and the U-2. And then it lit a fire under me to keep going to college. And I finished my four-year degree in three years. I went to Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University. And I actually did a paper story on me about how I was so driven to do this because I developed my passion. So when I finished that degree, I got out of 91. We had a recession hit. And so I had a hard time getting a job, and I wound up working part-time at United Parcel Service on the air ramp to Philadelphia loading airplanes. And as I did this, I said, I worked there during the evening, and during the day, I worked on cars again. I was promoted to a service manager, and I started not liking people because, you know, when your car's broke, everybody's upset, and they're mean, and they don't treat you nice. And I said, I got to get out of here. And so I called my friends down at NASA who left the military, and I said, are, are there any openings down there? And luckily, I had my bachelor's degree in aeronautical science. I got the job as a spaceship engineer. When I went through the job as a spaceship engineer, I immediately went into looking for another degree. So I, I went to the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University Worldwide Campus. And I did my master's degree, and it took me about 18 to 20 months. Finished that, and I remember I was working at the Mutual Buoyancy Laboratory with the astronauts, and I'm walking through, 
the cafeteria of Boeing, uh, like the mayor talked about Boeing, we have Boeing Aerospace down here also in Houston. And I saw a sign to get, earn your doctorate in as little as three and a half years. And it was through the University of Phoenix. So I said, why not? I did the other things. Let me go do this. Hardest thing I've ever done. I don't regret it. I would never do it again. I had a great time. And, and so I finished that degree in about five years. Because in between that, I had my motorcycle accident. And that's another story we could talk about later. But after I got the degree, I decided now it's time to give back. So I became a professor, and I worked at University of Phoenix, teaching in the master's program. I worked for Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University, teaching for undergraduate and graduate aviation classes. And I started working at Texas Women's University, talk about diversity, teaching in the executive MBA program. And while I'm doing all this, one of my students from University of Phoenix in my master's class said, you will be a great fit for us. I said, who are you? She goes, I work at Halliburton, and I think you'd be a great global training director. And I said, okay. And so I went over there, and then I took that job. And I stayed there for a couple years, and I enjoyed that experience also, except instead of going up, I was going down with the drilling operation. So this uh, program has been brought to you by Best uh, Big Events USA and Red Carpet Connection, as well as Keep Smiling Movement. And we have certainly captured a lot of smiles in the last week. So I want to go ahead and bring on our next guest as quickly as possible, Ronald Mann. If you'd please uh, give an intro, Andrea. Yeah, Ronald Mann, I had the pleasure of meeting him. He's a disabled veteran. He's a combat specialist. He's a United States Army combat combat medic and he has an amputee as is an amputee from the left below the knee and he has done really talented uh, athletic endeavors like a mixed martial arts world championship a two-time world paralympian for um jiu-jitsu and he has studied um in child and adolescent psychology at michigan state university uh, if we could have you on i am so honored to be in your presence ronald man if i could uh, salute you or bow down to you i would do that right now how are you doing ronald oh. It's just an honor for me you allow me to come and, and tell my story and to be able to work with you guys. Well, this is one of those situations where a segment will never be long enough to share your accolades and the impact you're making in life. So we'll we'll be a little intentional here. And I just want to say, did was your name initially Ronald Mann with one N and when they found out what a man you were, they added another N? I just need to know that. <laughs> no, that that just kinda of comes along with the property. No, my uh, my family comes from Sweden and German. And uh, very, very much on the heavy German side from the Midwest. So, yes, of course, I inherited that. Well, I wanted to, I guess, take care of the business of the power of connection. So, Vaughn, if you'd like to talk about her, how she connected you to this show, how she connected you to the event, and how she's connected you to the Keep Smiling movement, I would, I would like to address that first. Well, Yvonne, um she knew a really good friend of mine, Tommy, and... She's been working in, in health and holistic medicine for quite a long time. Um, and being an athlete, Tommy, uh, he's also a strength athlete, but he understands the demands that are on my body as a professional fighter. Um, so he introduced me to her, and she gave me ideas about the supplements that will bring my peak performance to the next level. Um, you know, we, as athletes, we run our, our bodies like machines. And yep. it has to be redlined the entire time. So 
what you put in, what you take out, these are all things that are going to affect your performance long-term. And for sustainability, the, these are the, the supplements we're looking at. Um, you know, when you get in your late 20s, 30s, 40s, how are you going to be able to maintain that level of, of intensity? And so Vaughn fortunately invited me to a gala that we were having maybe a month ago. And she just wanted me to come out and do a kickboxing demonstration and show ability. Um, and the, the people that I was there with, you know, it was about bringing community together, um, working together as one community to help the entire community get bigger and to, to stand up to lift each other up. And so that was something I had a great honor to be allowed to do. When no Vaughn brought me there, I saw you, and, like, there's a... I, I remember your face, man, dude. You're always smiling. You're always energetic. You're always positive. I'm like, I can see you going around the room. And then you came up with the Keep Smiling card and talked to me about, like, what you're doing personally to help people. And, you know, it just kind of one of those, like, you gave me a card, it gave my little, you know, let me, sh- let me show you my fighter's pose. What I didn't realize was going to turn into something greater to be able to have the opportunity to actually work with you. Well, I, I want... There's so many questions I have. I, I want to start off by informing the audience what it is to be a champion. So I, I would normally would go a little later on this, but I want to address your mindset and what you had to create to have the championships you have. And if you'd actually address how many championships you have and what it took. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> right when I got out of the, the uh, United States military back in 1995, um, I went in right out of high school. My entire family has enlisted in the United States Army since my great-great-grandfather enlisted in the Indiana militia during the Civil War. Um, that's an honor we are allowed to give back to our country and, and to be able to allow to, to have that service to the country that raises us, that gives us these freedoms. So after I got out of the Army, I lost my leg in a motorcycle accident almost immediately. And I'd been on the Army Taekwondo team. You have to understand this is 23 years ago. Um, people with disabilities, you know, we were still kind of, oh, it's, it's, you know, you'll be okay, Timmy. As long as you are strong again, you can make something of yourself, maybe. Maybe you can go back to work. And at 24 years old, I was not going to accept that, you know. I was a fighter. And so the first three academies I actually went to turned me away. And they told me I couldn't train there because I was an amputee. And it, it just it blew my mind. I was on the Army Taekwondo team. I served my country honorably. And for them to tell me, no, you can't, it, I just I refused to accept that. And so the fourth academy I went to, Laredo's Cross Trainers, they told me, yes, I can come and train. But they told me with the stipulation of, you will have to train just like we do. You have to do everything we do. You have to do it to the best of your ability, and if you can't do, then pick up your stuff and go home. And that's exactly what I needed at that moment. So, you know, you there's pivotal moments as we walk through this life. You can look back. I'm 40 now. I can look back on, on decades now, you know, like chapters in a book. That's one of those critical moments that I needed to encourage me to go farther. So after two years of training with Laredo's, uh, we decided, okay, you know, we're prepped up and ready to go. The prosthetist that builds my legs, Jan Stacoza, 
he designed leg, a prosthetic leg specifically for fighting. Um, and if you go onto YouTube, type in Ronald Mann MMA, you can see the leg actually in action. There's, there's, there's videos of my cage fights. Um, and actually, <laughs> there's a video of the fight where I won the 170-pound title. And this is against all able-bodied people. You know, we're in there, you're stripped down to shorts, you've got leg gloves on so your hands don't get cut, and that's it. So for me to fight as an equal against an able-bodied person, that to me sets the standards for us for life. But to win against an able-bodied person, to secure a championship, to elevate ourselves, we are equal. But in that arena, I was the best. How many people have done that? It's me. Just you? It's, that's, that's the most <clears throat> insane thing. Is like, this is my dream. I, wow. I'm starting to see this revolution. You know, for 23 years, I've fought overseas. I've fought here in the States, from kickboxing to Muay Thai, jiu-jitsu tournaments, all the way into MMA. Um, after I won my title um, and retired, I, I was like, let's say, you know, I've done, I've done my run. I've done the best I can. And so I retired and I uh, settled and found jiu-jitsu. About two years ago is when I found jiu-jitsu. And January 6th of 2017, I got a call from Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I was like, who is calling me at 8 o'clock at night from Brazil? I, I live in Washington, D.C. I, <laughs> I don't know anybody in Brazil. The guy on the other end of the line, El Cerle Silva, was the head of the UAE Jiu-Jitsu Federation's para division. And he invited me to the first World Para Jiu-Jitsu Tournament. Um, it was being run the same time as their, their World Tournament. And so out of 65 fighters, I was the only American selected to go and represent uh, Team USA. Um, so that was, uh, that was the catalyst. You know, I knew where I had to be. I've known Professor Yamasaki and Sean Divney here in Washington, D.C. for the last well over decade of my life, and I needed to be with them for my camp prepping into Abu Dhabi. Um, and this tape is on YouTube as well, but I won Worlds in 23 seconds. How? I'm sorry? I said how. How did you do it? How? Scarf hold to armbar. Uh, and if he wouldn't have tapped, his shoulder would have popped. That's crazy. Ow. So, in your in your desire to win and not quit, where where was that instilled initially? You know, I, and I look back on that, it it had to be for my father. Um, he was a hard man growing up, and we we grew up in the Midwest in the seventies, like. I went to work when I was 13. After school, you know, you if you're not working around the house, you actually have to go out and start earning money. These are, you know, you don't just get a car. There's no, back in the 70s, 80s, we were just starting to get into video games. Like, we're in, we're in the rural area. There's work to be done. And so one of the directions that they put me in was in uh, wrestling. I started wrestling when I was six years old, folk-style wrestling. And, you know, we'd, we'd have our little community travel teams um, and going through life dad was always there for that um, and you know every father son we have our relationships and my father is um, now quite, quite advanced in his years and 
we don't know how much longer that uh, we'll be able to see each other. And there was a long time that I didn't appreciate the gift he gave me um, of that intensity, of that self-discipline, of that iron will. You know, and now seeing what I've been able to do with my life, the gift that I'm giving back to others, this, this is a gift to me, man. Like, at, at one point after the motorcycle accident, I had a pistol to my head. And I didn't know if I could go on because I thought I was too broken. And I don't know what intervened with me. At some point, I remember hearing in my head, do not go as a quitter. Do not go as a quitter. Fight. Don't go as a quitter. And at that moment, I put the pistol down and made the decision that if I had to go, I was going to give much of myself back to the world as possible before it was my time. And that has led me on the trajectory of where I'm at now is, you know, 170-pound MMA cage title holder, three-time world champion para-jiu-jitsu holder. And the three-time is with actually fighting people that are not handicapped at all. These are para and able tournaments. Um, I just got back from Sweden where we had 55 countries and 600 competitors. Um, My first two matches, I ended up losing, but I came back strong. And my last two matches, actually one of them was against a Romanian soldier who lost his eyes from a hand grenade. And um, he found his way back into life through jiu-jitsu. And that's, maybe that's the, for me as a soldier, um, I suffer PTSD. As a combat medic, there's things you have to do sometimes that um, cause you, we call them soul wounds. Um, And those are things that you have to do at the time to make the mission happen, but you reflect back on it, and uh, there's a certain, there's a gravity of guilt that you have to deal with. Um, Ron? Yes, sir. We're getting getting kind of close to the end of the segment. I want to be very intentional with getting as many questions and quick answers as I can at this point. Let's get focused, brother. Yes. Okay. So, first of all, thank you for everything you do. I know you teach children. Um to actually be powerful, be disciplined. So I, 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 revisiting the question I asked earlier, what is it when you're in the fight that causes you, no matter how you get hit, to overcome it and win? There's an emptiness. Uh, as we walk through life, I very much practice Zen Buddhism, um, being completely in the moment to see the colors, hear the sounds, taste the food. Most of us are we live on robot style and just kind of go through it. Um, in the middle of, of cage combat, things are happening so fast. There was a time where you'll hear the crowd roar and the pain, you realize that you're in trouble. You know, things, things are not going down, but it's a switch. The cage will teach a lot about you. Either you go down and you take your beating and you curl up and they call the fight, or you stand back up and you fight again. And that's what I choose to do. I will always stand back up and fight one more time. Did you ever see Cinderella Man? Uh, yes, I have. Okay. I, I'm, I'm not going to ask what your favorite movie is at this point, but how did that resonate with you? It, the, stories, the stories run the same. It's the beauty, the, the beauty and the triumph of a spirit overcoming what normal people would call limitations. Like what, what I do 
people are like, oh my God, he's a one-legged cage fighter. But I look at other people, like somebody who may have spina bifida and they can't walk and barely use their arms that are in a chair, and they're living happy, strong, healthy lives. Our bodies are only a shell. They don't control us. They, they hold our soul for just this moment in time. Our soul is what's given to the rest of the world. Beautifully said. You had said uh, in a couple of conversations we've had that jujitsu saved your life. Um, yes. Very quickly respond to that. Jiu-jitsu is a lifestyle. Um, you develop a community around you, all the teammates, all the practitioners, and like MMA or Muay Thai, you're punching, you're kicking, you're damaging each other. Jiu-jitsu is more flow. Yeah, we can go all the way to the point of where I may break your arm, but you can tap and quit, and it's respect. You know, we, then we bow and we, sh- we shake hands and we go again. So the, the community of it, but the true pureness of jiu-jitsu as an art, as a self-defense tool, Martial arts has two paths. Physical, of course, you want to be able to defend yourself. But emotional, jiu-jitsu helps you grow as a person how to um, react under adversity. Well, I want to make sure Andrea gets a chance to ask you a question. So, Andrea? Well, we always like to know whose uh, favorite books are, you know, on your list of things that you love to read or know about. Um, you know, I, I would have to say... Hemingway easily is um, is easily my, my most favorite author. I just love that time period, and I love the way Hemingway writes. I can picture his words in my head, the way he builds his stories. Um, the Sun Also Rises is, is probably my favorite book from him. Cool. And I want to actually ask you now at this point, and you heard the first segment. So Lou has some similarities to you in that he's overcome stuff as a child, to be who he is. What movie tra- changed your life or relates to what you'd want to recommend? Hmm. You know, I don't, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of movies that I rank high on my list. Um, I would say Apocalypse Now. Um, one man's journey, one man's trial up the river and how he handles that. It's, you know, you're, you're there alone. You can rely on yourself. Yeah, you have people around you support you and take care of you, but in mm-hmm. the end, it's only you. And, and how, please how go can ahead. Pe- I was just going to say, how can people follow you, connect with you? Because we're down to the wire now. No problem. If you jump on fa- a Facebook, Ronald Mann, um, and if you go to Instagram, Ronald Mann five 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 at Gmail. Um, there's only there's only one me that's got a big red beard and one leg. <laughs> it's pretty easy to find, man. Well, Ronald, I, I'm telling you, I'm so inspired you by you because. You have the smile of a, a giant that wants to change the world, and then you have this fighter instinct that can take the world down and take anyone out that actually is going to challenge you from being this good person. So thank you for all you do. I can't wait for my son to meet you. And thank you for all you do for kids to actually teach them discipline and be warriors. Ken, thank you so much for having me on today and helping me spread the message of love and strength. Well, you will be in the Keith Smiling book. Can't wait to get your chapter and release it in probably around March of 2019. And we'll have you back on the show to complete this conversation. I would be happy to anytime, Ken. Have a good day, brother. Thank you. We will be back next week with some more powerful guests. Thank you very much. Have a happy holiday season. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Amplified. Be sure to join Ken Rashan again next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. 
Now, go get your message heard.